Part 11 of The Blue Review, Volume 1, Number 1, edited by John Middleton Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. French Books by J. Middleton Murray Those who admire the puissant genius of Balzac will find a certain keen pleasure in reading every page of his strange medley of criticisms. Honoré de Balzac, Critique littéraire, Introduction de Louis Lumet, Messin, seven francs fifty, published in the series of unsuccessful newspapers produced by him between the years 1830 and 1840. The first of these ventures was the Feuilleton de Journaux Politique, in which appeared by far the greater mass of his articles. This was followed by the Chronique de Paris, 1835, La Caricature, and finally, when Balzac was at the height of his fame, by the Revue Parisienne, 1840, in which appeared his best critical work, including his famous article upon Stendhal's Chartreuse de Palme. The cumulative effect upon the reader of this collection of criticisms is in the main one of amazement at Balzac's encyclopedic interests. There is in this book the same tumultuous desire for universal knowledge that finds its expression at a higher emotional level in the Comédie Humaine. In the Feuilleton, we find Balzac reviewing scientific treatises on the laws of light, military textbooks upon cavalry exercises, and an exposition of the Pauline epistles. And in all cases we find his criticism competent and informed by a genuine enthusiasm for universality. But such reviews possess at the best an antiquarian interest for their curiosity's sake. It is well to have them collected. They may always afford an afternoon's enjoyment and an increase of our unceasing wonder that Balzac could have done the countless things he did. Of far different quality and deserving far different treatment are the essay on the Chartreuse de Palme, the article on Sainte-Beuve, and the two criticisms of Hugo's Enani. Balzac disapproved of Enani, but his critical motives expressed in his first article are of the highest. Il est donc d'autant plus utile que ce drame soit jugé consciencieusement que, si l'auteur était d'une fausse voix, beaucoup de gens le suivraient, et que nous y perdrions, nous, des chefs d'œuvre sans doute, et lui son avenir. These are the reasons why Balzac devoted a detailed and searching criticism to Enani. We will examine in succession, he wrote, the conduct of each person, then the ensemble of the drama and its aim, and finally we will inquire if this work marks a step forward in dramatic art, and if it does so, in what sense it does so. Probabilities and, above all, the intrinsic logic of character are set at willful defiance in the play. And to the character of Charles V, Balzac devotes one of the most significant passages in the book. A drama is the expression of a human passion, of an individuality, or of some great deed. Verdre is the example of a drama expressing a passion. Henry IV, Henry V, or Richard III are examples of the drama that expresses an individuality. In each work, the genius of the poet has originally translated a human life. Whether it be Racine who idealises it, 
or Shakespeare who presents it with every nuance. Schiller, in William Tell, represented a deed with its accessories. Men, passions, interests, all three arrived at the aim of dramatic art, but here the character of Charles V does not belong to any of these three theories. Don Carlos does not express events, character, or passion. He might be called Louis the Fourteenth or Louis the Fifteenth. Perhaps Monsieur Victor Hugo wished to find the formula for royalty, and Balzac follows out his criticism relentlessly until he reaches the conclusion. L'auteur nous semble jusqu'à présent meilleur prosateur que poète, et plus poète que dramatiste. Monsieur Victor Hugo ne rencontrera jamais un trait de naturel que par hasard, et, à moins de travaux consciencieux, d'une grande docilité au conseil d'amis sévères, la scène lui est interdite. Between Balzac and Sainte-Beuve, a great gulf was fixed. It may be that in part Balzac's hostility to Sainte-Beuve was due to the treatment that he himself received from Sainte-Beuve, but in truth the barrier between them was Jansenism. Balzac often forgot that he was a Roman Catholic, but at heart he always was, and he remembered it when he criticised Paul Royal. Sainte-Beuve for him is the past master of ennui. As you read Monsieur Sainte-Beuve, ennui soon falls upon you, as you sometimes feel a fine rain fall and finally soak you to the bones. Phrases with ideas too tenuous to seize rain down upon you one by one, and sadden the intelligence that exposes itself to this humid French. To Balzac, Sainte-Beuve's style is finicking. He goes led by an idea to collect a tiny bouquet, and he returns ladle with a bundle of hay. If Balzac could have abated a little of his spleen, he would perhaps have said that Sainte-Beuve was exercising a most delicate power of selection and would have found in him something akin to the genius he so warmly recognises and champions in his article on Chartreuse de Palme. When we recollect that the treatment that Stendhal received during his lifetime, during the whole of which he went practically unrecognised, there appears something magnificent in Balzac's eulogy. Monsieur Bale has written a book in which sublimity breaks forth in every chapter, he has produced a work which cannot be appreciated save by men of the highest souls, at a time when it is but rarely that men even discover great subjects, and then only after having written a score of extremely spiritual books. Doubtless Balzac was vaguely conscious of the presence in Stendhal of a power that he himself never had, a sense of perfect form and balance, by which in Le Rouge et Le Noir and in Chartreuse de Palme we are given a picture of society in which manners never predominate over men, nor men over manners. Stendhal had a lesser gift than the author of the Comédie Humaine, but his gift was in greater perfection. Balzac did not see this clearly, but he did recognise clearly and without hesitation that Stendhal was a man of genius. He devoted to the book one of the most masterly pieces of genuine critical analysis that has ever been written and championed Stondal in 1840, when Stondal himself prophesied that he would but begin to be read in 1880. I have read the book for a third time lately, 
I have found the book ever more beautiful, and I have felt in my mind the happiness that comes from the prospect of doing good. Is it not doing good to endeavour to do justice to a man of immense talent, whose genius will be discerned only by the eyes of some privileged beings, the transcendence of whose ideas deprives him of that immediate but passing popularity sought by the courtesans of the people and despised by great souls? If mediocrities knew that they are given a chance of raising themselves to the company of the sublime by understanding them, then Chartreuse de Palme would have as many readers as Clarissa Harlowe when it appeared. L'Audination by Julien Bendin, Emile Paul, three francs fifty, has been a stumbling block to the Academy des Goncourt. Together with Les Filles de la Pluie by Henri Savignon, it came before the ten members for the final choice of a laureat dédit. By the casting vote of the president, Monsieur Bendin was defeated. The judgment has received a considerable amount of criticism in France, nor is the attack upon it undeserved. I confess that my acquaintance with Monsieur Savignon's book upon life in Ushant has been confined to a leisurely glance through its pages in a bookshop, but its faults are so manifest that the acquaintance is sufficient. Fille de la Pluie is chaotic, and therefore not a work of art. It is notes and sketches for a book, very good notes and sketches, but yet not a book. Confined to somewhat rhapsodical descriptions of primitive life in a stormy Atlantic island, the book lacks even the first shaping of the creative imagination. By its choice, the Académie des Goncourt has weakened its already unsteady reputation. L'Audination is, if barely a great book, at least a good and sincere book. Its theme is to be found in a phrase, La pitié c'est l'amour. Felix, the student of philosophy, of whose soul the book is an analysis, has fallen in passionate love with Madeleine, the wife of an unsympathetic commercial husband. Madeleine becomes for a year the mistress of Felix, who finds that his love for her begins to die. Felix realises that Madeleine is wholly in love with him and absolutely dependent upon him, and in the very moment when he decides to break the liaison for ever, he begins to pity her. His thought turns to her, broken, abandoned and helpless without him, and from the pity rises something of a new love. Between the new love and his passion for philosophic contemplation follows a terrible struggle. Felix leaves Madeleine for a time, only to return and watch her from a hiding place. Elle leva la tête. Il vit ses traits d'enfant devenus en huit jours des traits définitifs, où rien ne jouait plus, et où les signes de la souffrance faisaient moins mal à voir que ceux de la volonté. Il vit ses l'œil vitreux, convidé de son ressort, où rien n'attendait plus. Maintenant, elle était au pied de la montée qui ramenait chez elle, et elle montait lentement, contraignant avec elle toute la quotidiennité de sa lourde existence et toute sa servitude. Et il pensa, elle remontera comme ça tous les soirs de la vie. Alors, il n'y tint plus. Il voulait lui crier, « Madeleine, tu n'es pas seule. Je ne te quitte pas, je t'aime. 
Il voulait sortir de son ombre, courir à elle. Felix let Madeleine pass without a word. His power of pity was exhausted. He had in his veins the poison of pity, yet death had not come to him. Thus ends the ordination. Felix marries and has a baby girl and devotes himself to his passion for philosophy. Ten years later, the second part of the book, La Chute, begins. Felix is living with, yet apart from, his wife and child, wholly devoted to abstract thought, gradually becoming more and more remote from them. One day the little girl tires very quickly and falls ill, and Felix, during the night, comes to look at her. He vaguely recognises the symptoms of a spinal disease, and as suspicion becomes certainty, a great wave of pity comes over him, breaking down the walls of his intellectual detachment. Henceforward comes the old bitter struggle between the brain and the heart, of the life of the intellect and the life of love, and after weeks of torment, love has the victory. Of this book, it is easy to say that the theme is as old as Naturam expellas furca, tamen usque redibit, and that there is nothing more. The essence of l'ordination is the nature of the defeat and the nature of the victory. In the first part, the brain has the victory of the heart. Felix will not say the word as he watches Madeleine leave her house. He has put Madeleine from him, and he is broken. In La Chute, the heart has the victory of the brain. Felix leaves the life of speculation for his baby girl, and he is conscious of his own defeat, that he has abandoned the better part, and that the ideal of his true self is lost for ever. It is not a case of expelling nature with a fork. The moral values of the intellectual and the family life are at least equal. There is no fundamental rightness in the victory of instinct over the intellect, and the tragedy is that they cannot be reconciled. If you choose so to put the case, l'ordination is the statement in its barest and simplest terms of the problem which the philosophy of M. Bergson glosses over. Instinct or intuition is no panacea for the realities of life. The intellect and the desires of the intellect are as potent and as valuable to their possessor as instinct and the blind impulses of instinct. It has not been given to M. Bergson in the twentieth century, to solve the difficulties and quiet the groanings of St. Paul. It is very necessary to appreciate the intense humanity of the theme of l'ordination, because its artistic expression has not kept all its unity. I think that no critic who is at the same time a writer of fiction himself could doubt that the first part of the book is a piece of absolute autobiography, written with the intense simplicity and restraint of a soul that has suffered. It is the directest statement possible of the most terrible mental struggle a man can undergo, when his love for a woman fails and turns to pity. It is a masterpiece of its kind. Not a word rings false. There is no loose-lipped sentimentality, no maudlin regret. Compare it with a book, which English criticism has been content to hail as great. August Strindberg's Confessions of a Fool, a welter of vicious sentimentality, against which l'ordination stands like a Greek statue, 
against the image of obscene Ashtaroth. In La Chute, we are conscious that the directness of personal experience has been lost. Yet even here, there are one or two passages describing the very process of the true intellectual life, which have an echo of the passion of Plato's symposium in them. Il venait de découvrir la vie intellectuelle, la vraie vie intellectuelle, non plus le caressement des idées qu'il avait connues comme tous de sa classe au sortir du collège, non plus le frôlement des doctrines entre une visite et un dîner, mais les trente passionnées, permanentes, exclusives, les semaines entières passées à creuser un concept sans penser à autre chose. L'action fiévreuse de ce creusement, et les trances de l'échec, et les joies de triomphe, et la fécondation allaitante de l'idée par l'idée, et l'être entier tendu comme d'une tension d'amour pour savoir si telle idée descend de telle autre, ou bien si c'est le contraire. But in spite of such passages, the whole effect of the second part, as compared with the first, is that of an intellectual construction that has lost touch with the intense reality of personal experience. The intellect clarifying the vision and restraining the emotions produced l'ordination. The intellect alone, without an emotional basis, produced la chute. La chute is but a logical extension of l'ordination. Monsieur Benda is a philosopher and not an artist. He lacks the true creative imagination which might have transfused the reality of the first part into the second. The Académie de Goncourt has committed a twofold error. It has passed over a book that is almost great, for one that is assuredly mediocre. It has, moreover, committed an error which can never be repaired, for I am convinced that Monsieur Benda will never write such a book again. L'ordination is not the result of an artist's instinct to create a great story, but of the wounded man's instinct to tell of his sufferings. And to this tale, without other sufferings, there is no hereafter. End of part 11